Come on over, Seda. Hiya. <laughs> Just get this on you here. So how are you doing, lovely? Yeah, fine, thanks. How are you? Oh, doing away, hon. So, just the usual today, no. eh? Uh, no toner. Uh, just a trim, please. Oh, if you're sure, your, your colour really could do a wee refresh. Why would you want to get your hair done? Are you trying to look pretty for other guys? Sarah? Sorry, uh, no. No, I, I'm thinking about growing it out, actually. Maybe go back to my natural colour. Okay, well, if you're sure. <laughs> so, um, you and the fell off anywhere nice this year? I'm not sure. He's um, booked to go away with the boys for a week, so uh, depends if he can get more time off. <laughs> Bloody cheek. You should be going away with the girls. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You think you're going anywhere without me? Keep dreaming. Well, um, me and James are off to Tenerife. <laughs> Booked this beautiful, um, a, a, a beautiful four-star hotel, all inclusive. <laughs> Sounds great. Really great. <laughs> we know it can be hard to ask. Where the hell are you? To speculate on someone's private life. Let me see your phone, slag. To make assumptions. You are worthless. Hard to jump to conclusions. You deserve this. You know that, don't you? We get that's hard. But you know what's harder? Domestic abuse isn't always easy to spot. And it can be even harder to talk about. It's not always bruises, cuts and cracked teeth. It's verbal, emotional, sexual, financial. It's about control and degrading someone's self-worth. And sometimes it's others you love who get hurt. As professionals, we're in a unique position to be able to spot the signs of domestic abuse. By asking questions and offering support, we can provide a lifeline before the person or situation reaches crisis point. We know it can be hard to ask when you're busy and unsure of what to do. But there is a way to reach out and offer help. AVDR is a simple and effective tool when dealing with suspected domestic abuse. Firstly, ask. Do it sensitively. They may not be ready to talk, but let them know that you're there. Then, validate. Remove blame. Assure them that you believe them and that no matter what has happened, they don't deserve it. Document. Depending on your role within your organisation, you may need to document these details down. Be accurate, using their words, not your own. Describe any injuries in as much detail as possible. Finally, refer. Refer or signpost the appropriate services. For instance, Scottish Women's Aid. Even if someone denies abuse is happening, they may think about your conversation and take action later. Domestic abuse is real, and it's happening. It happened yesterday, it's happening today, and it will happen tomorrow. Everyone's in a position to spot the signs of domestic abuse. If you think someone is experiencing domestic abuse, reach out. Are you OK? And if they're not, ask them to call the Scottish Domestic Abuse Helpline. If you don't ask, who will? Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm joined again by a very special guest, and we'll explain what we're going to talk about. But first of all, Hetty, just go ahead and introduce yourself first, please. Uh, yes, so my name's Hetty Barkworth-Nanton. I was Joanna Simpson's best friend, and I'm now the chair of Refuge, the domestic abuse charity in the UK. 
Thank you. And thank you so much for coming back on. Do you want to just explain some of our conversations that we had after we recorded about Joe and what happened and, and we were with Di? Yeah, so, you know, we, we had an extensive discussion with you and Diana Parks, Joe's mother, which is interesting for me because, you know, it gave me the chance to talk a lot about stuff which I haven't really talked about at that level of detail for quite some time. And then when we kind of went off it and I had time to reflect, I thought, you know, the thing that we didn't really talk about is my regret, my thoughts as a friend and the fact that I was supporting her extensively as a friend over the years of abuse that she endured and also the three years of separation and how I responded to that and what I did and what I feel like I wish I had known at the time which would have resulted in me responding in a different way and might have made the outcome different or it may not have, who knows. But, you know, I think it's worthy of a conversation at the very least. Yes, as do I. And I was so happy that we had that follow-up conversation because oftentimes I am contacted by people saying, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. My friend is experiencing X. Now I know that these are red flags. What do I do? And also I have a lot of families that I work with who are bereaved and they all say the same thing, which is if only we had met you before. And so this conversation has come from a very authentic place of us wanting to share, particularly as we're coming up to the holidays and Christmas and we know that abusers can escalate their behaviour at that time. And now that people have heard what happened to Joe, you were her good friend, her mum, everyone was trying to do their best but we don't know at times what we don't know, i.e. back in time, there wasn't that much knowledge about coercive control. And now there is legislation in the UK and across different parts of the world. So let's start with some of the things that you were hearing about what was going on with Joe and where and what you now understand those things to be red flags. And then we can start to think about, well, how would you do things maybe differently? Yes, certainly. I wonder, would it help if I read out the story of what happened to Joe, which I read to the then Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, who's now the Queen Consort, which, you know, sitting alongside Diana Parks was what inspired her to want to do something. And that, I think, that might be useful because it sort of brings to life a little bit some of what was going on. Would that help? Yeah, let's definitely focus on the behaviours, the things that were happening. I think that would be really helpful for people to understand some of the more nuanced detail of what was happening in the relationship. Yeah. Okay, well, let me read this out and then we can take it from there. So, so Joe's husband, BA Captain Robert Brown, held a knife to her throat in 2007 when his resentment of her overflowed. She pleaded, what about the children? Think of the children. And he said, I'll be in prison and you'll be dead. She didn't report it to the police for fear that the children would find out the truth about their father. She fled to her mother in the Isle of Man, who overheard a telephone conversation where he ensured she would never report it to the police. He said, if you tell the police, it will be the worst for you. Joe was a nurturer and a homemaker. She was dedicated to creating a happy family home and an environment for her two young children and giving them the best start in life. School was a really important part of that, and their school bag was always around. She knew how important their homework was. She married him in 1999, and he moved into her treasured house, which she had lovingly restored, and it became their family home. But her marriage to Brown was not a happy one. It was characterised by isolation, intimidation, contempt and silence. She'd go days without a word from him, just glances and a really ever-present, cold, intimidating stare. And he'd say things like, why did you do that? You were, you were pathetic at that meeting with the teacher. Or he doesn't want to do his homework, so I've told him not to bother. Or I'm not eating that rubbish I'll cook for myself. Those are just examples of what he would say. And they were all targeted at the things that were important to her. Things about how she was bringing up the children, things about her homemaking and the food that she was cooking that wasn't good enough. Um, those silent tears used to fall down her face, but she would wipe them away and have nothing but warm love and smiles that she called the children for supper, desperate to protect them from the reality. But that was never very far away. So being told by him that he had checked the house alarm records to track her movements 
gave her real concern. Discovering receipts for surveillance equipment in his office started to turn that concern into fear, genuine fear. Being told that by him that he she had he had dreamt of killing the children with an axe, fear turns to terror. And it's the drip, drip, drip of this that starts to have a really awful effect on her and how she's feeling about her life. When he held the knife at her throat, she said his eyes were cold and terrifying. She never stayed alone with him again. And then started three years of really increasingly sinister divorce battles. Texts like, if I can't have the house, then neither will you. He knew she loved it and was determined she wouldn't keep it. She would never put him down in front of the children. She knew he was their father and it wasn't her job to destroy their belief in him. But for him, they were his vehicle for control. The chance to get close to Joe and put his foot inside the door, despite agreeing to a voluntary undertaking not to enter the house. Tricking the children into divulging Joe's security codes. He did that more than once. They don't need to go to that school that you're sending them to. They don't need to do their homework. They didn't want to, so I didn't make them. The divorce continued. Parity is the road to happiness, was his statement. He was regularly seen at the top of her drive, just watching. He was seen in the garden by neighbours and breaking into the house. She called the police and they told her that the majority of murders are committed by family members, but unless she's physically harmed, they can't do anything. Again, he would be at the top of the gate, just watching. The security lights stopped working because the cables were cut. The CCTV stopped working because the cables were cut. The divorce is not going his way and he's slowly losing control of her and it's looking likely that she'll be able to stay in her home, which is his object of obsession. His mother, Diana, begged her to never be alone in the house and keep the curtains closed at night as she knew he was watching her. One week before the final High Court hearing, Halloween, it's the last time he will see her before facing her in court. She's my best friend and we're talking. She's despondent. The realisation that none of it would be over once the decision was made. The realisation he would continue to use the children to hurt her, to intimidate her, to control her. We talked about his behaviour. We decided he was weird. I tried to make her feel better, to underplay his behaviour, to will her to believe that it was going to be fine. At four o'clock, she let Robert Brown through the gate to the front door in his car. She welcomed her young children, aged nine and ten, with a loving smile and open arms, and they run through the hallway to the family room to wait for Mummy to come in and give them chicken curry she'd been preparing and the chocolate cake, their favourite. He carries their homework bags to the door, a part of the children, an extension of her love, but this time it wasn't as it seemed because this symbol of love was filled with evil. He had put a claw hammer in a homework bag and used it to batter her to death, at least 14 blows to her head. The children were put in the car to travel with their dead mother to his pregnant girlfriend's house, where he left them before driving into the night to dispose of her body in a grave in dense woodland he'd prepared months before. But he had the last word, continuing his control at his trial, where he was given free reign to destroy her character, resulting in his acquittal for murder. He's serving a prison sentence for manslaughter and will be released in 2023, the court psychiatrist confirmed he was a psychopath. We all knew that. Her mother, children and family are terrified of him. We're all terrified of him. The nightmare will never end. Joe was my best friend. Why didn't I know the escalating risk she was in? Why didn't I convince her to protect herself? Why didn't I know she was the victim of escalating domestic abuse? And why didn't she? There's so much there, Hetty, of raw emotion that I can hear from you. And I'm sure it feels like it was just yesterday in how you describe and characterise what went on. And I think that oftentimes that feeling of helplessness during things happening, but also afterwards, we can become consumed by it. And I think what's really important here is shedding light, you know, putting light into these dark areas of behaviour so that people really do understand what risk looks like. You mentioned that the police said, until something physically happens, there's nothing that we can do. Well, that's why the stalking law is there. And it's also why the coercive control law is there. So I just want to make that clear to my listeners. That's why it's so important to have legislation that can help with early identification, intervention and prevention. 
but some of the key behaviours that you described and why it's so important to describe and for people to hear those things, his insidious behaviour, the why did you do that, the questioning, the devaluing, the undermining, the you were pathetic, the name-calling and the reduction, reducing someone and devaluing them. I'm not eating that rubbish and targeting the things that Jo cared about the most, that she loved cooking. So to someone else, that might not land as an insult, right? But to Joe, that is really distressing. She's a homemaker, a nurturer. These are the things she values the most that he's targeting. The fact that he says he doesn't want the children, he says, you don't have to do that homework. Again, it's undermining everything that she's doing to create that supportive, happy, healthy home life. What I hear very clearly is just how he targets everything that matters to Joe the home that she lovingly restored, that meant the world to her, that he moved into, the family members, her children, and no doubt other people around her, probably her mother, probably you, all the people that she's close to, targeting them and saying saying insidious things about them and making Joe feel very uneasy and trying to isolate her. These are the things that when somebody else says, well, it doesn't sound like much to me, it sounds quite innocuous. Think about how that impacts the person. If these are the things they care about the most that's slowly being targeted, stripped away, how that impacts your sense of self-worth, self-esteem, psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, how you how that person would feel on a day-to-day. And when I hear you describing these things, Hetty, what I wrote down was invades her spirit. Yeah, yeah. Completely, completely invades her spirit. Indeed, I was, you know, I was talking to her within the hour um, that she was killed, and her spirit had got. Her spirit hadn't gone because it was always there, but she was very down. And and you know, I hear this all the time now. Now that I'm, you know, working in this field, but you know, she had got to the point where she should have been feeling strong going into that divorce hearing because all the indications were that it would it would go her way. But she wasn't because she knew that it wouldn't end. She was saying that I just don't think it's going to end. And he'll probably, next thing he'll do is he'll probably try to get custody of the children because he'll have lost on the house side. But he'll know that the next thing he can do to get at me is the children. She, you know, she she hadn't lost hope, but she was very down. As you would be when someone invades your spirit, even if you're the most optimistic person, It's the sense of hopelessness and helplessness that when will it end? And I I hear that from victims all the time. When will it end? How will it end? And if you have a man like Brown and you talked about the knife event, and I'm not calling it an incident because it's an extension, it's a continuation of things, but you mentioned the look that he gave Joe. And this is what I hear about often from women, that there is a look, I call it the ice cube effect, when it's devoid of emotion and care and love and you realise that they mean business. They mean it. It's not an idle threat. And I say that in inverted commas because I hear police officers say that all the time. They use that term, idle threat. And I've seen it in murders multiple times. There is no such thing as an idle threat when it comes to coercive control. And that, again, as we're talking, we're talking about high risk factors that we know about now. And that's in the literature, it's in the research, it's from people like me who've analysed, assessed, spoken with hundreds of families who can report what was going on, how and what was happening far better than even the police. Because you, Hetty, you were living it with Joe. Di was living it with Joe, which is, again, why it's important for family members and friends to be part of domestic homicide reviews Take that learning and let's put it into early identification, intervention and prevention. And Brown knew exactly what he was doing. Joe most likely understood that, that knowing the the divorce would most likely happen and be in her favour, that could well trigger further events at Brown's hands and him targeting the things that matter the most to her. And that hope and helplessness, why I point that out is because this is oftentimes where we see women take their own lives. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And again, I see it 
time and time again I speak to women there's a woman I know right now who's going through a very very messy difficult divorce but it is it is absolutely underpinned with heavy coercion um this is exactly the kind of thing it's very very easy for women in that situation to lose hope because they know there's no end to it they really know there's no end to it and when you lose hope it's a very dangerous situation to be in it is. And this is why it's absolutely vital that police and others understand what's happening in these situations. When you have an abuser who has the mindset, it ends when I say it ends and it ends how I end it and I will win at all costs. The, the psychopathology is so important for police and others to understand that we cannot have police officers anywhere in the world saying to women anymore, well, he hasn't physically harmed you, so there's no risk, because we know coercive control and those threats significantly correlate with femicide and familicide. And that's why we now turn this into action. Well, what are the things that we should be doing? Well, using the coercive control law is one of them, and the stalking law. You talked about surveillance. Now, what surveillance looks like is the abuser appearing at the end of the driveway, appearing in the garden, putting at times listening devices or checking children and asking about burglar alarm codes and putting cameras in devices so that women can be monitored and watched. That's what stalking looks like. And it's over time that it happens, cutting cables. You know, so again, just using that word stalking, sometimes people think that it means something else. And I think because of the celebrity world, it normally attaches to describing those behaviours. And, you know, I thank you for that, for breaking down the, the detail of what was happening, the intimidation that goes with that when you become a sitting duck in your own home and when your security and your tranquility and your peace of mind has been invaded. And that's what he was doing. Each of those acts was saying... I am above the law, I can do what I want, I can watch you, I can see you, I can be wherever I choose to be. And the problem is if the police don't act and hold those individuals to account, that reinforces that they can they have more power than the law. And that's why, again, for police officers, for professionals listening, and for mothers, fathers, best friends, that we have to understand that the legislation that exists, it exists for a reason to protect, to be used. So we don't want people downplaying what, what's happening. We want to say that Joe's case is one of many, unfortunately, and where high risk factors, people call them red flags, but the high risk factors are always there. And we want to make sure that they really are understood as warning signs that something may well escalate to femicide or children being harmed because sometimes men will harm the children to create the catastrophic event to take revenge on the primary victim, which is their former partner. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy. And health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off.
Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free. Made with clean skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I've, you know, there's a case I'm supporting at the moment, as I've said, and we've got the police involved. We had to escalate to get the police involved. And I'm afraid in that case, she was told that, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't hit you, has he? He hasn't hurt you, has he? Um, and that's today. That's not 10 years ago. Again, I would just reinforce, you know, apart from the knife incident, you could probably say that there was no single incident of what happened with Joe that would be stand out and say, that's a massive red flag. We've got to do something. It is that drip, drip, drip. It is the accumulation of everything that kind of creates, that, that demonstrates that increasing risk. And I think still today, professionals don't spot those things. They don't ask the right questions because you've got to ask the right questions. And, you know, I haven't had this conversation with professionals per se, but the number one question I would always ask is to the woman, how do you feel? Do you feel fearful? Are you afraid? And for me, that's the number one question. Because all of this is designed over time to make the victim feel frightened for her own self or that of her children. And that is a state that doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. Absolutely. It's the reason, Hetty, why the first question in the DASH risk model is about victims' perception of fear. And it correlates significantly with femicide. When women tell us they are fearful and they don't feel safe, it's with good reason. And that question is so important. And then you can start to unpick, well, who are you concerned about? For yourself, for your children, for both? Maybe it's your dad or your mother because you're closest to them and that's who the abuser is threatening like with Holly Gazard's case. So that first question in the dash risk checklist is so important. So for anyone who's a mother, brother, sister, friend, finding out about how someone is trying to protect themselves, i.e., well, I put CCTV in, I put cameras in, or they're starting to increase their security, well, that tells you someone doesn't feel safe. So they're the things that we should be thinking about in terms of red flags. And we can start to think about using the dash and anyone can use it, actually. I've designed it uh, a separate version so that a victim can self-administer it or a best friend can sit there with their friend and go through those questions. And the questions are so important. So fear, separation. So we know separation when someone's trying to leave that increases the risk, particularly if you have a man like Brown who is effectively saying it ends when I say it will and you will not have the house. He didn't want her to have the house because it mattered the most to her. So he would rather destroy it than have her have it. Now that, again, is a high risk factor. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, as a friend, the natural thing to do as a friend, for me, certainly, being with Joan all the, in, during all of those times, and I know as her friend, I wasn't alone. She had other friends who, who were the same. We were on that journey with her day in, day out. And personally, I found myself naturally wanting to reassure her, partly because I didn't really understand the risk that she was genuinely in. And I didn't want her to feel frightened. I didn't want her to kind of be on tender hooks the whole time. And therefore, you know, when she was with him, I wanted to reassure her that, you know, no, she's not going mad. Eh, he's just weird. He's just, you know, he's just really toxic. Blah, blah, blah. And, and as the risk escalated afterwards, and even just in that very last phone call before she was killed, we were talking about, my God, you know, this is going to be the last time you see Brown before the high court hearing. Are you frightened? You know, we were having that conversation. And I thought my job as a friend was to make her feel better, was to downplay it all and make it all normal, because that way she would be okay. And as I said, I wish I had understood more. And I would implore any friends out there who are who've got friends who are going through similar situations. Number one, if they are frightened, it's probably with very good reason. And number two, actually being a good friend doesn't mean that you reassure her and make her feel better. Being a good friend is that you understand her, you listen to her, you believe her and you help her get the help that she needs and the support and the protection that she needs. And you don't back being a true friend means that you don't back off until she's got the help and support that she needs. Thank you for sharing that, Hetty. That's such an important point that oftentimes we look to try and reassure someone and we don't want them to be distressed. We don't want them to be upset. The problem when we do that is we're telling them not to trust their own instincts. We're telling them not to trust what they see and hear and what they know. So when we flip that on its head, what does that look like? It, it looks like trust your own instincts. If you feel unsafe, go to a place of safety. So we turn the conversation on its head. We listen, we actively listen to what's being said. We empower, we validate. And we explain, it sounds like a very concerning and difficult situation. You know, th those sorts of phrases where we are actively, reflectively listening and empowering through our words, rather than something like, well, what did you do to make him angry? You know, these sorts of things that place the blame immediately at the victim's door, we shouldn't be saying things like that. It's absolutely about empowering the victim to trust their instinct and get to a place of safety to get accurate information. So Refuge has a great website. There's a helpline 24-7 that you can ring. There's a domestic abuse tip line in America or hotline, I should say, the same in Australia. So I always say, if you do nothing else, signpost that person or give them the best information possible so that I've got lots of information on my Laura Richards website of if you are a friend or family member and your loved one, you believe they're being abused, you know, and being patient with someone when they're explaining what's happening. And they may be telling you this and it's been going on for six months, a year, two years, and they still haven't changed anything, but be patient and continue to encourage them to establish other relationships outside that relationship so that we start to lessen and help them with the isolation, but let them know that they can depend on you. I, th I think that's a really important one that let's say they're not ready to leave. Joe was, but sometimes, you know, we know it takes a woman at least seven times before they can leave the abuser, the male abuser safely and that they leave for good seven times. So there will be the back and forth, which again is why I say to encourage and be patient because it, it does take time. And oftentimes women know that leaving makes them unsafe. They do. I think that I think it's very complex reasons why those seven times and I think an average of five years exist. It's massively complex, it's not for one reason. But without a doubt, certainly in the later years, a big feature of that is just comes back to that fear and the understanding that actually if I leave it is going to become worse and my fear becomes higher because I actually fear that he will kill me or oftentimes they have threatened to kill them if they leave um, or their children. So recognising and under, understanding that as a friend, that that is normal, um, supporting them through it, but not supporting them through it 
you know, I didn't do the wrong things. I did what I understood at the time. But as you say, it's listening, it's calling it, it is focusing on what to do to help to support her and protect her rather than focusing, as I did, on trying to reassure her and say it's going to be okay. I mean, even in that last hour, we were talking about the fact that he must be so so angry about what happened with the um, the divorce case that was a landmark for their divorce case. I said, oh, he won't, you know, he won't hurt you. His girlfriend is pregnant. Um, you know, I was thinking of all the things that would make her feel better, make her feel safer. And that's not, in those cases, in those examples, in those situations, that is not the support people need. They need to be listened to and they need help and signposting um, and support in the act of getting help because it's not easy. They need someone walking alongside them in doing that. They don't need someone telling them actually their fear is unfounded because generally their fear will be well-founded. Absolutely. You know, and I, I'm nodding along because oftentimes family, friends, that's who we go to first of all. So that's our first port of call. It won't be the police. It won't be a professional. We'll test out our best friend. We'll throw something out there. That's what I see with victims all the time. They do it with me too. They test to see what my response is before they proceed. Because whilst we're assessing and analysing them, they're doing the same to us. Are, are you a safe person? Will you judge me? You know, and that judgment can also stop someone from disclosing so oftentimes, and I hear it with police officers as well, by the way, who look to, with best intentions, reassure someone, but they give them inaccurate information. And I, as I always say to every professional that I train, and whoever it might be, always empower the person to trust their own instinct. Their gut, we have more brain cells in our stomach than dogs have in their head. And that intuitive part of us, when we fear and oftentimes the hair on the back of our necks go up or we have a visceral reaction, it can be a look, it can be something that is in the interaction that we sense and we feel and we understand without a word being said, because we all are instinctive and intuitive. So we always want people to be following that and to make sure that they act on it rather than listening to a professional's voice in their head saying, well, maybe you're being a bit dramatic and a bit paranoid. When women are fearful, that's what I see in every murder, they were fearful prior. They understood the risk, their gut instinct was right, and somehow or someone downplayed it or minimised it. And oftentimes I also hear, Hetty, things like it being described, well, it's a toxic relationship, which also downplays what's really going on. It's not toxic, it's, it's abusive. So again, just in the zeitgeist, you know, where we are now, currently a lot of people use that word toxic. But what we want people to think about is the power imbalance and what's motivating the perpetrator, what are the things that they're targeting and how they are disempowering and creating an unfreedom and unsafe places and spaces for the victim. So you said some really important things there when we think about how we support and saying that you will always be there for that person and asking, what do you need from me? I think oftentimes we don't think about that. And it might be the victim doesn't know at the time what they need, but they start thinking about that. You know, risk and need are two different things. So once we know, well, how can I support you? What do you need from me? It might be check-ins are needed. Can you just, he's going to come round. Can you give me a call? Can you text me? Or it might be, can I come round to your house and use your laptop or use your phone? Because I don't want them to see my phone or audit trail, my tabs or my computer. So it looks different for each person, doesn't it? But I think asking that question, as well as the questions about risk, is really important because separation is a high risk factor. It's where we see escalation with finality. You know, we talked about that, didn't we? Finality, that last call that you had with Joe and the fact, the divorce, which Mr. Reed's the lawyer, the prosecutor, I should say, completely missed that continuum. None of this was happening in a vacuum. So as a friend, a family member, look at the totality of everything that's happening. The same as a professional, you must assess everything that's happening, not just one event that's going on. You want to know about what's been going on previously, as well as what's going on in the here and now. Totally. And the, 
The other thing, again, at Refuge, we run the only sort of dedicated service to tech abuse. And the degrees to which the tech abuse manifests itself is quite mind chilling, to be honest with you. And often women wouldn't know that their safety has been compromised through their phone or through listening devices or whatever. What they'll know is that there's something weird going on because he knows more than he should know. He'll make damn sure that you know that he knows more than he should do. And again, you know, I would say if you're listening and this is you or if it's your friend who says there's some weird stuff going on and I don't know how he knows this and I don't know how he's doing this, you know, reach out to the uh, National Domestic Youth Helpline and ask to speak to the tech abuse team because actually you'd be quite amazed how easy it is for your devices to be compromised and that's again quite a dangerous, quite a high risk sign in terms of abuse and coercive control that's going on and it's not okay. Yes, really important point because we all live our lives online and offline. So when we're hearing, but he just seems to know things and I don't know how, change all your passwords. Oftentimes, actually, from running Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service, it wasn't that they were hacking into things. It was that they could get the passwords. So they were going in legitimately to devices and to apps and so on. So oftentimes we don't keep changing our passwords or if we set them, we set them to things like our mother's name, our date of birth, our children's date of birth, right? So if you know the person, you can easily work out what their passwords are. So that's another really important part of abuse, that it happens online and offline and that monitoring, that coercion, that stalking, really important to document it. It also tells police where to collect evidence. And so to law enforcement, your job is to ask the questions about risk and to collect the evidence. And oftentimes I hear when I train law enforcement, they say, but we just didn't have the evidence. And I always say, no, but you won't have the evidence if you don't ask the questions and if you don't look to proactively investigate and get that evidence to build a case because you are the higher authority. You have to take that proactive action. No coercive control or stalking case will just resolve on its own. And what we do know is that many abusers are serial, so they go on to the next victim and the next victim. So the behaviours that we're hearing, again, high risk, coercive control, stalking, if there's pregnancy or new birth, we know that that heightens risk. Really important. Revenge motive. If you're not going to get the house or you're not going to get the children, these sorts of things. But if you were to ever leave me, I'll kill you. If you were to report me, I will kill you. Take those threats seriously. We know that one in two of the stalkers and the coercive controllers, if they make that threat, they will act on it. So again, as you're a friend or a mum or a dad or a best friend, if you hear someone relaying that to you, if that's what they're saying, this is high risk, really important. What they're saying is if you play by my rules, you live. And if you don't play by my rules, something very serious will happen. That's about ownership and entitlement. That is a very dangerous psychopathology so that's where we start to move into asking the victim questions with the dash to shine a light on the perpetrator so that we can really understand what risk they pose to the victim and to their children and others. Mum, dad, best friend, it might be to you, Hetty, when you're intervening or you're being the best friend, you're being the protective buffer, it could be that you are targeted too. Yeah, without doubt. The other point that is interesting from kind of thinking about what happened to her and then thinking about other cases that I know now, is there's another flashpoint that happens sometimes whereby you often hear that he was charming before we got married, but literally the day or the day after the wedding, suddenly I got this different person. And they may even say things like, well, you know, I've got you now, almost that kind of language. And I hear it at marriage. I hear it at the point where someone has become pregnant. I would say if those flashpoints happen at those key points, which are all about control, don't hang around to try to make things better, because that is an absolute surefire sign that you have got on your hands someone who is absolutely a massive abuser and that's not going to get better by you sticking around and trying to make it better. Excellent points. And I think even before that, I always 
you know, ask people to think about how did he describe his exes? How does he talk about other significant relationships? Because if he says that they're crazy and they're psychos and this sort of thing, that's a red flag when you're early dating. And yes, if you hear that change from the perfect guy, too good to be true, um, incredible person, and then when the ring went on the finger or when the pregnancy happened, there was this change that's the true person. The rest of it is just cosmetic mirroring to be able to get you under control. And that is a very important part of when we are dating and when we are thinking about committed relationship, what's the type of person that we want in that relationship and the healthy behaviours versus unhealthy. But also I hear things like, well, he doesn't take rejection well. So someone who doesn't take rejection well is a problem. And in life, we all have to deal with rejection, right? Everybody's been there and how you deal with that is a really important part of your character and your traits. So again, when you see those red flags and challenge it, if someone says, oh, well, they're toxic or they use these euphemisms, as I call it, to give them a pass. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? And I'm going to use the word empathy. Oh, well, he was abused as a child or his last the last relationship she cheated on him and we go into this sympathy mode and we give him a pass but yet we hold women up to a higher standard but not men so think about that double standard as well if you're a mum oh it's just because he loves you you say things like that rather than it's a red flag and this is worrying darling and I don't think you should be continuing this relationship or think about it because these are behaviours that are worrying yeah so oftentimes again mums best friends they look to reassure and give him the empathy and the pass rather than red flag, red flag, red flag. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if there's one thing that people take from this conversation, it is that your job as a friend, your job as a mother, your job as a sister is to, yes, support, but don't underplay their natural instincts. If you hear it, it's probably true. Yes. And the last thing to say is that you are not his rehab. So if he were abused as a child and he has unresolved trauma and if he is projecting all that stuff on you, that's not for you, if you're listening and this is your experience, that's not for you to take responsibility for and resolve. That's all them. And I think oftentimes as women we take on people's, I'll call it shizzle. It's not a technical term, but it's, you know, whatever it might be. And, well, he needs me, I'm the only one who understands. These sorts of things that are said... But what we're basically doing is saying that we are pushing our own needs down and that their needs come first. Please don't do that because your needs are incredibly important. And again, if you're a best friend or a mum, a dad, it's not for your loved one to be the rehab for all the shizzle that's gone on in someone else's life. These are all red flags again. So what it does basically, Hetty, isn't it, is it just disguises red flags and so oftentimes I hear sympathy, people think it's sympathy factors versus red flags get the hell out of that relationship. Yes, and it won't surprise you to learn that in the one or two sessions of counselling, marriage counselling that they did have when Joe kind of called it, this was before the knife incident, but Joe had already kind of called it and said, I don't think it's working. And they went into marriage counselling the primary conversation that came from him with the abuse he experienced as a child. I mean, that's a new piece of information to me, but that doesn't surprise me. And oftentimes when we are empathetic and sympathetic, we immediately rush to, oh, the poor thing. But there are lots of us who've had that experience, but we don't abuse others. So again, how that can be used as a shield, where actually it should be seen as a red flag, and it's not women's responsibility to fix men. And that shift is an important one for best friends, mothers, fathers, that narrative to put out there. And again, we've, we've talked about it, but leaving is a process. So to leave safely, to plan that leaving, and it may take time. It may take a long time to be able to actually leave and leave safely. But there are lots of professionals like myself, professionals at Refuge, Women's Aid, there's national organisations, there's local organisations in every country. So make sure you're talking to a, a specialist, an advocate who can also hold your hand through that process and give you the right information and use the dash 
anybody who's not using a risk assessment process, you know, all specialists should be asking questions and control, coercive control should be at the heart of all of those questions. It's not about the physical stuff and that is important too, but we really want to understand coercive control. Definitely. And I would just say that any professional that you reach out to, whether it's refuge or, or wherever, the number one thing is to say is that their number one job is to believe you. You know, you have spent your entire relationship not being believed and they will believe you, they will listen. And it's quite interesting that time and time again, again, I hear from colleagues on the front line that they talk to people and they end up sort of asking questions about, you know, is he doing this, is he doing that? To the point whereby the woman will say, gosh, it's almost as if you know, almost as if you know him. And it isn't because they know him. It is because it is a pattern that is well-trodden, sadly. And there are patterns that are very familiar um, in every, in pretty much every case. Yes, absolutely. And oftentimes it's not picked up on. So the language is important. Telling someone what to wear, undermining her, devaluing her, belittling her, intimidating, threats isolation, economic and financial abuse. A lot of people don't think about how that can entrap or equally keep someone going through a protracted legal process. And it maintains contact and it maintains that power and control, that abuse. So it could be someone running up credit card debt. There's lots of different ways that women can be abused and entrapped and exploited. So always thinking about how those behaviours might sound innocuous on their own, but look at the pattern. How is she being forced to live? And is her world, is it smaller or is it bigger? Is somebody opening up their world? So that's a very good litmus test for whether you have coercive control. If the world is smaller and there's an unfreedom, there's restrictions and there's rules and regulations, That's they're very good indicators that there's a coercive controller. And oftentimes, you mentioned it, Hetty, my, my last thought is just about, you know, oftentimes psychopaths are in this area. And I mean that in terms of they have relationships with women, they are abusive, and yet all their behaviour is airbrushed out. And because oftentimes when we come into contact with them, they can be charming and they can be very manipulative. Well, they're pathological liars as well. These are traits of psychopathy. So that's why we should always think these are the most dangerous of men. We should never be using that term just a domestic. Across my 27 years, these are the most dangerous cases. And this is where women and children are killed in the home and outside the home. So last, let's have last thoughts around how to help someone. Let's end on a on a positive of what would be your top tips, Hetty, and I'll summarise as well. So I guess number one is don't look to reassure, look to help and support and listen. Um, number two is always get professional help. And there's lots of professional help out there. And if your friend or your sister or your daughter isn't ready themselves to go go and seek that support you can you can seek it first you can listen to a professional and that will help to help you to understand whether actually you're overplaying this or whether actually you know what you are suspecting or fearing is something that may be well may well be genuine and finally try your very best to stand alongside them and guide them to get the right help but always stay alongside them because it's a very lonely place Excellent. That last point, so important, very isolating, very lonely place. So reassuring them that if they are going to leave, you will be there for them. If they decide to stay, you will be there for them. That part of the relationship is so important. We don't want to isolate people even more. We want them to know that we will always be there and we are the lifeline, potentially. We might be the only person that that they can trust. So giving them accurate information, acknowledging their situation is difficult, asking what they need, encouraging them to, to build other relationships outside of the home. Um, whether it's, you know, as simple as going to watch a movie with someone, going to grab a cup of coffee, going to yoga, just creating a bigger network of people. In the UK, you can call Crime Stoppers. If you are worried about somebody, you can report anonymously. So again, that's another avenue that you can go down, but always encouraging them 
to create a safety plan and to seek professional support and advice and never downplaying what they're experiencing, always asking them to trust their instinct and if they feel unsafe. That really is my number one point of trusting your instinct because oftentimes when women have been abused and their autonomy has been undermined, their self-confidence, their self-worth, their agency, they don't know which way is up. And so reaffirming to them that actually what their gut's telling them is the thing that they should listen to because the wiring reprogramming happens in the brain, but the gut will always tell you the truth about what's going on. Yeah, yes. And, and, you know, bear in mind, they will have been manipulated and coerced to the point of not believing their own narrative, to the point of not believing their own instincts. So showing you believe them is the single most important thing. Yes, and listening. I, I see at times, sometimes the weight just lift off of someone, the power of listening and actively engaging without judgment. Really important conversation, Hetty. Thank you so much. And thank you for being so authentic and honest in the conversation. It, it's the only way actually we can start to take action and do things differently for somebody else who's listening, whether you're experiencing abuse by an abuser or whether you're a mom or a sister, a best friend who doesn't know how to help. Um, this is taking the first step. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And if there's anything else you want to add, please go ahead before we wrap. No, I, I think we've had a long ranging conversation. I think, you know, the bottom line is I know I could have done things differently. And I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but I do know I could have done things differently and made sure she got the help that she needed. And look at the action you're taking now in Joe's name. And I'm sure she would be incredibly proud of you because you're the chair of, of Refuge. You're using your experience to shine a light on what you would change and how you would change it. And you're taking action, which is the most important thing. We don't always know. And that's my, you know, again, a number one thing. All families say, if only we had met you before, Laura, where these conversations are a way of knowing me and knowing you, Hetty, the dash is why I created the dash so that people are trained to an accredited standard and they use it. It's a lifeline. So these are really important conversations. And I'm thinking about Joe and you and Di. No, thank you. And just to, and her children, by the way, who are incredible human beings, but just to thank you for the, the light that you're shining, not just on what's happened here, but on numerous other um, cases and making sure that as much as we can, you know, professionals as well as members of the public can hopefully take something from these things and learn and ultimately we save lives. Absolutely. They're important conversations. They're hard to hear, hard to listen conversations, but we shouldn't shy away from it. We absolutely must tell stories that matter. And Joe certainly does matter and her children, the legacy, Joe's legacy is significant. And you know, I, I wish you all well. I know we'll continue the conversation, but they're so, it's the authenticity that's so important. When there are other podcasts that talk about murder as entertainment, there's nothing entertaining when it happens in real life, right? To the real people, we talk about it and we tell stories and we give a voice to the voiceless. And I do that. And I will never stop doing that because it's what creates real change. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hetty. I was walking on eggshells around my partner. I didn't know where to turn. I'd read about Refuge's National Domestic Abuse Helpline, but I was hesitant to call. The woman I spoke to really understood my situation, though. It was such a relief just to talk. It made me feel sane again. I was reassured that it was a confidential and non-judgmental service run by a charity... She said I could ring at any time, even if I just wanted to talk about what I was going through. It's free and open 24 hours a day. It was comforting to know that the helpline is staffed by an all-female team of experts and that I can also contact them using live chat. I was told that the helpline is open to any woman who is afraid of her partner, whether you're being physically abused or not. The helpline advisor helped me realise I'm not alone and reassured me it wasn't my fault. That was really empowering and I began to believe in myself again. She made me feel like I had choices. 
from that moment on, I could see a life free from violence and fear. That phone call was the beginning of the rest of my life. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.